Hello, welcome to your courageous journey. This is Julie Faber. And this is Julie Sickles. And we're here with Jeff and Denise Taylor. And we're super excited for them to be able to share more of their journey with you. I think that you listeners will really enjoy hearing about their story and learning and understanding more about some new things that we haven't really had a chance to dive into yet. So first of all, I've known Denise now for a little while. I have really enjoyed getting to know her and becoming friends. And she is awesome. She has actually kind of started or been on a podcast herself this summer talking about first responders families. And she's really working to try to make the community better for first responder families. So I'm really excited to kind of dive more into some of their family story and also some of the experiences that Jeff has had and how it's impacted them. So we want to start off just by letting Jeff and Denise introduce themselves. Okay, I guess I'm up first. (laughs) See, Jeff and I have been married for almost 29 years. Uh, We started out, you know, young. Um, We had kids right away and Oh, well, I guess back up. When I met Jeff, he was a firefighter. So he's been doing this for longer than we've been married. He was trying to get hired full time when we met. And it was pretty difficult at the time. That was way back in 1995. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty competitive to get hired where we were living at the time. And so it took him... How many years? It took me almost six years full-time testing just to get hired. I had some other wow. jobs in between all of that, like wow. to become a municipal firefighter, six years. Okay. So it took me a long time. There's a lot of stress and anxiety that went along with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he finally okay. was hired uh, here in the state and we moved here in 1999 mm-hmm. and we've been here since. So he's been with. Uh, this fire department now for 20, 24 years, 24 okay. years. Wow. Long time. He, he's been doing it closer to 30. Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, this month is make 30 years that I've been in EMS mm. and wow. uh, in April, it'll be 30 years in the fire service that I've been doing it. So okay. I did kind of a dual thing. I, I ran on the ambulance um, is where I first started out. And then I went from that to orange County fire authority and then to Jet Proportion Laboratory as an industrial firefighter to the fire department, and then finally Salt Lake County Fire. Okay. Okay. So it was quite the journey. I went through five fire academies. Yeah. And uh, those alone are just stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, It's nothing like, it's kind of hard to explain what they're like other than 16 weeks of just being on the grinder and just, and working your butt off. And wow. you can fail for any reason they want to fail you. Oh, <laughs> and if yeah. you rage drop below an 80%, you're out. Wow. So wow. it was pretty intense. Yeah. That's and, tough. You, and you went through that five times? Five times. Whew. Yeah. Some That's... people would call that foolish. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he always wanted to do this and it, it was his dream job. Nothing else was going to cut it for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I supported that right off the bat. It, it was, it was rough. It was, yeah. it was, you know, a lot of hope and then our hope was dashed and then, you know, more hope. And then, uh, no, they, yeah. another 
rejection letter or it was heartbreaking seeing him go through that but you know it it finally paid off and he's with a a really good department now he he's treated well and he's made a lot of great friends and yeah it's the career itself is a really really good one so i thought maybe we'd start off with like what's going on recently and then we'll kind of go backwards okay yeah i know that probably sounds really weird but in uh Last May 11th, I checked into a rehab facility or a, a center for PTSD for 45 days. Okay. And spent um, intensive inpatient there and had different modalities I went through. We did brain spotting. We did EMDR. We did ice baths. We did uh, shamanic drumming. We did, <laughs> we did um, all of the hippie stuff yeah. and all of the scientific <laughs> stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Patient. Yeah. Yeah. So I went in there for PTSD and came out with like some more ability to be able to handle my emotions mm-hmm. um, because I got to a point where I just didn't care if I lived or died. Mm-hmm. And I preferred death as a, to be completely honest. And the day that I had gone out jogging for like three and a half hours, four hours, or I went missing, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's probably a better way to put it. Denise knew something was wrong. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what got it going in there or got me into chateau recovery mm-hmm. so maybe maybe a little like history on what led me to that if you want like for the, yeah. the month before so leading up to it i actually you know i'm going to go back about three years about three years ago i just had like this the wheels started coming off mm-hmm. and um i actually had a suicide attempt mm-hmm. and put a belt around my neck and change my mind on three different occasions now my wife didn't know about that at the time and then i just progressively got worse and worse and worse and then the month leading up to going in i had a i'm a captain at the fire department and i had to discipline one of my friends and that was really uncomfortable and then we almost rolled our engine off of the cliff and i it was one of the few times i thought i might die yeah my goodness we were hanging on like a 45 degree angle and like I had to climb out of the engine over the doghouse to get out. Uh-huh. I had the thought, you know, if I might die tonight or if I don't die, one of the guys in the back is going to die. Yeah. Then we had my brother get uh, blue sheeted into the hospital. Oh, his brother is also a firefighter mm. and he's been doing a little bit longer than Jeff has. And I listened to a phone call between him and his wife and he basically said his words were, babe, if it goes sideways, just know I love you. Oh and I gosh. knew what was happening. And then right after that, I got kicked out on a potential hanging um, mm-hmm. at the fire department. And so like my mind was going through my brother having suicidal thoughts and then having to go on a potential suicide. Yeah. Right? I was already overloaded. <laughs> yeah. And then what led up to all of this, the, the stress that was there was, one of my captains that I worked with closely, he had committed suicide a month prior to all of this. Oh my god. So my brother, my brother actually broke out of the facility and the next day was the funeral. And I just I had zero emotion. I had nothing left of me. Yeah. Tank was completely empty. And then that was a Saturday. And then Monday I went jogging and and I left my phone on the table and I just I was hoping that I was I was more passively suicidal than anything but i was mm-hmm. i was jogging down mountain view Ho- corridor hoping that somebody would run me over mm-hmm. and jogging on the white line so it was uh 
it wasn't as close as like what I did before, but I wanted to die. And God saw fit that it wasn't going to happen that day. And I made it home. And my family was like, you need help. And uh, me and his brother and his brother's wife kind of ganged up on him a bit. So I called my union president and I just, I was just crying and I told him I need help. Yeah. And uh, said, I don't know what to do. And they got me into Chateau Recovery for the next 45 days. So it was, uh, it was pretty intense. I'm glad to say that I'm here today and uh, it's, it's been a long road. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I'm seven months out of recovery right now. Okay. Wow. That's great. So how are you doing right now? How are you doing these days? So I'm actually doing really good. I, I went in and I, since I've gotten out of recovery, I continue to do ice baths almost every single day or a cold shower. I do Wim Hof breathing every day and I do meditation every day. Okay. And, and I just went in and I got a stellate ganglion block shot, which okay. goes into the ganglion nerve bundle and it basically puts it to sleep and lets your sympathetic nervous system reset okay. and um, kind of come back online. And so I had that happen twice, once on December 21st and then once on January 2nd. And I feel like a load has just been lifted from me and I feel so much lighter and happier. Like I thought I was doing really good before, and but now I feel like I'm doing really, really good. Like I'm coping yeah. very well. That's awesome. So I so, see a big difference or not. Night and day. Yeah. That's and, good. and I think what the stellate ganglion block really is, it has been really helpful with is, uh, you know, before when, and Julie, you know all about this, but when somebody has severe PTSD, the therapy isn't as effective because they're always in that fight or flight mode. You know, even going to therapy for some of these first responders is traumatic in itself. And so it's not always helpful for them to go. Sometimes it sends them even into further trauma. Right. Um, it's triggering. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So what this shot would help with is to just get them out of, of that fight or flight, get them in that window of tolerance where, you know, the majority of the people live you know, where they can regulate their emotions and it, it makes therapy a lot more effective. Okay. Are you doing therapy now too, or you're not? Yes, I am. You I, are. I go, okay. I go every two weeks and I do EMDR okay. right now. Okay. And, um, I've also done ART, so accelerated resonance therapy. And um, they both have been very effective for me. Okay. So right That's now fantastic. my therapist has been fantastic. Okay. I don't think I've overwhelmed her with my stories yet. <laughs> we haven't delved into all the firefighter stuff, but mainly family stuff. Yeah. Because I think I had my midlife crisis and <laughs> and needed some help. And so she's she's been very, very uh, helpful with for that for me. Okay. So tell me about the ice baths and cold showers. Okay. Was that is that something that you've done before or is this like oh, no. new for you? And how did you I mean, I guess it works if you keep doing it. Like, I yeah. Don't know. So, uh, the first I got there on a Thursday, and on the first Saturday, they took us into the Provo River for an ice bath for three minutes, and the Provo River was freezing cold. Yeah, all that spring runoff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so um, basically, what it does is it resets your vagal nervous 
fatal yeah. nerve mm-hmm. and brings you back into your window of tolerance. And so, yes, I do it. So we work 48 hours on and 96 hours off. Uh-huh. So on my four days off, I do an ice bath every day. We have a trough outside and it's frozen over. I have to take a sledgehammer out there right now. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I have to break it open to get into the ice yeah. water. And, and uh, my daughter, she always watches me and says I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to recruit as many people as possible to come do an ice bath with them. And he will never get me in that thing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of thing they do in Iceland and stuff. Like, Yeah. Yeah, but it, it it's it really works. It's uh, I don't know all the physiology behind it, but I do know like if I'm feeling upset or I'm feeling tense, and I go take a cold shower or I go jump in the ice bath, I I'm in there for six minutes, and I feel a lot better when I get out. Yeah, true. how do you feel when you're in? Uh, <laughs> I'm super cold. Oh yeah, <laughs> all I can think about is just breathe. <laughs> So you set the timer know. and you're just waiting. Yeah, I set a timer on my off watch. So you can... Do you have yeah. to like like dissociate kind of like think about something else besides being in ice cold water or? No, actually what I do is I, I put on some music and uh, okay. I put on Bethel music actually and a, a song, Holy Forever, just sings about Jesus. And I think about the lyrics in it and mm-hmm. and I meditate on Jesus Christ oh, while okay. I'm oh, that's so great. about that so I yeah. can yeah and um that seems to help me that's i probably has been one of the huge things for that i've noticed with jeff um was you know before he went to recovery he had pretty much lost any kind of relationship Mm -hmm. on on a spiritual level and now it's back it's there which is really, really great. And I know that's one of the things with PTSD is people mm-hmm. kind of, and I'm, I'm not sure why, Julie, maybe you can help us with that. Yeah. I think maybe being in that state of fight or flight, right? When you're in that state of fight or flight, it's really all about survival. Mm-hmm. And I think that the spiritual side of us is very sensitive and a lot of times we have to kind of quiet down to kind of turn inward and connect with our intuition. And when you're in fight or flight, all of your body's resources are really coming together to get you to be able to fight or flee. So for instance, even digestion is completely stopped. You know, some people really struggle with not being able to digest. Some people throw up when they go into fight or flight. Some people end up having like diarrhea because everything in your body is just going to survive. So there's not a lot of energy or resources, both I would say within your brain or within your body for anything other than I need to survive. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess if we go back to like, I grew up in a family where we were allowed to laugh, like happiness and laughter was allowed and anger. And that was it. And so, and then I went to a Seventh-day Adventist private Christian school and I was taught that God was scary and mean. Mm, okay. and so like I, I was my, what I really thought of God, right? I never saw this loving father figure. I always imagined it as like the savior standing between God and mankind saying, okay, dad, I got this, like, it's okay, you know? And I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but 
the fear of God was really in me. And then the farther I got into fight or flight or into PTSD, the worse it got. And the more disconnected I became with God. Yeah. And so actually right before, kind of makes okay. me emotional, but um, that's okay. Right before I went in, Mandy uh, gave this lesson on the, the prodigal son. And it was like life altering for me just to see God in a different light because I never viewed him that way. And so when I went into recovery, I had that image in my head and I, I read the Bible and I read a different version of it. I don't read the King James. I read the NLV and I just thought about God in this light of the loving father. And I really just held on to that belief and it, it changed my life. So I'll always be grateful to her for that lesson. Yeah. I bet she doesn't even know that. She probably doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've taught lessons in Sunday school and stuff before, and it's just always like, okay, another lesson. Like, how am I going to make this meaningful for somebody? Or, you know. And but, and you never know what yeah. is going to touch someone. Yeah. It's true. It's true. And Mandy is amazing. Yeah. Yes, I, I love her. And I'm hoping I, I can get her on the podcast someday, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be good. Well, something that I would like to talk about is first responders and why that group is so susceptible and why it, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of uh, Jeff's friends over the years, you know, we've seen countless divorces, families breaking up. There's problems with numbing, like, um, addictions, you know, but also the suicides. It It's a really big problem with the first responder community. More firefighters die every year from suicide than they do line of duty death, which would be, you know, an accident or whatever. And it, it's something that that's not talked about in their community and their culture. They have, you know, a, just a different view on mental health. They don't talk about it. They, you know, they're basically the suck it up. You know, you knew what, what you're getting yeah. into. And so why are you crying about this and do your job and don't talk about your feelings. And that's pretty much how they deal with this just horrific things that they see mm-hmm. on really every time they go to work and it just piles on top of each other. And so that the culture is there where they don't address it, you know, and the ones who do talk about it are kind of ridiculed. Mm-hmm. Um, some departments are not, and, and Jeff has been really lucky. Um, he, he's found a lot of support through the fire department through, through his, uh, but I know a lot of people who they ask for help and they end up losing their jobs. Wow. Wow. Um, so people don't, it's not a topic that is easily addressed yeah. for many reasons. Yeah. And the support from their families will be their greatest support. And what's happening, what we've seen happen, and why I feel so passionate about this is that these men and women are out there, you know, day after day, every time they go on shift, 
and the trauma just piles on top of one another and they don't have time to process and they go home to their families and little by little, they just start changing. They become more aggressive, more angry. You know, they start drinking, they start using drugs, they form other kinds of addictions, you know, just to cope, just to get that escape from all of just all of those things in their head. And the families tend to suffer. It's hard. And these first responders, it's not who they want to be. It's not who they started out being. Um, It takes a special kind of a person to do this job. And they just slowly start losing that. And so, you know, like when Jeff and I were married, you know, 29 years ago, he was not the same person as he was last year. And so a lot of marriages will fall apart. And a lot of children grow up in homes where there's a lot of anger or a lot of emotional irregularity. It affects every single person in this family. And that that's kind of what we started seeing with Jeff. And I'm so, so grateful that he, he agreed to go because at first he, he was just going to go to the, to the center just just for me. And I kept telling him like, no, you have to do this for you. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be here to support you every step of the way. I'm, I'm not going anywhere, but you know, let's do this for you. And, and, you know, eventually that started working. Um, you know, he started seeing the benefit of that. I think if we start out like kind of at the beginning of our marriage, like we were young. So Denise was 19. I was 23. We had kids almost right away. I was a firefighter, so I was on a pager, waking up in the middle oh, of the night. That pager. I'm so glad <laughs> we don't live by the pager anymore. <laughs> right? So my sleep has always been disturbed for over 30 years now. I've never gotten a solid night's sleep. And that starts wearing on you. The way it's been explained to me is like a, a small leaky faucet or a drip in your pipes mm-hmm. in a house in over 30 years, right? It just starts wrecking havoc. Yeah. And that's definitely what has happened to me. And, and I think... You know, general public, I I don't think a lot of them understand what the job really entails. You know, I think a lot of people think it's, you know, responding to house fires or wildland fires. And maybe, you know, the the joke is, you know, that saving a cat from a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, where those calls do come in, but it's a very small percentage of what they actually go on are fires. Mm. The majority of what they go on are domestic violence, car accidents, overdoses, Mm. you know, really some tough things to see involving children. Mm. Those are probably the worst. And basically they're present for people's worst days every time they go to work. And so I think over time, they start thinking that's normal. Mm-hmm. That's it's normal yeah. to live in tragedy and that these or bad people are out there, that people really are bad because they see terrible acts of violence. Yeah. And this, this is what they live with. And they choose to do this for a profession, which and that's admirable. And it comes with a heavy toll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes like the the additional stress that that we have in our jobs, like I work in the same community that I live in, 
And even farther than that, like I live in the same valley that I work in. And so like, as we drive around here, I'll tell Denise like, oh, hey, on the, a guy popped up with a gun on this call or, hey, um, I almost rolled the engine over here or, hey, <laughs> I remember where this kid got ran over. And so like the trauma is like always there. Like, yeah, it's being triggered all the time because head. you're where you were when it happened. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly reminded of it every time I drive by. So, um, that's so tough. That's just one of the additional stresses in our life, right? Mm-hmm. An- another stress that we have right now that I think is really affecting families is mandatory overtime. Mm-hmm. So, like, the fire department has to run. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're a service that is provided for the public mm-hmm. and we're always there. Mm-hmm. But if somebody doesn't relieve you, you can't go home. Right. Oh. So, but like Denise and I are pretty fortunate with that, but I haven't had that happen to me personally, mm-hmm. but I've seen it happening to some of these younger guys and they can't deal with it. And it's wrecking havoc in families. Yeah. It's causing divorces and it's causing people wanting to quit the job. And it also causes people to contemplate suicide. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't think it is, but it's all the little stresses that keep adding up. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. in our department over the last five years, we've had a suicide almost every year. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah. Well, t- I think that's another really good point is your job is set up so, so different than a normal nine to five job. Right. right. So you will work. How many hours is that? Like 12 I work two days on, four days off. They oh, call okay. it the 56 hour work week. Mm-hmm. So like most people work 40 hours, right? I'm already working 16 hours over that. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's like a 96 hour work week. And mm-hmm. then you add the over on top of that. Uh, there's been times when he hasn't come home for five or six days straight. Oh my goodness. That's running calls, you know, during the day, Two o'clock in the morning. I mean, all kinds. And he just, he doesn't sleep. And then he comes home and he's exhausted. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. When you're working, it's, you're always on edge. You never know when another call is going to come in. Right. And you have no clue how much sleep you will or will not get. And it's very, just the nature of the job is very unexpected, very impromptu, always being on edge, always not knowing what to expect. Like it's not great for someone who maybe needs consistency in their life. Right. 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 And I I shared this the other day with our, I'm in a first responder group, alumni group from uh, Chateau recovery. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, one of the things I'm working on personally is to not be reactionary anymore because my job, everything I do is reactionary. You call 911 for whatever it might be. And I respond yeah. And I have to figure out a problem and solve it. I'm not out there like creating and making. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm solving problems or I'm destroying something. Mm-hmm. And so like that, actually, I didn't, I hadn't realized it before, but that really starts to wear on you mm-hmm. yeah. as, a, as a person, like the creative side is gone. And what takes over is yeah, and I, reactionary. And I think we're here to create, I think. Personally, I think that's our purpose is to create. And so when you don't have, when you're working 56 hours a week, always just, you know, reacting, there's no room for creativity. No, there is no room. And so like earlier you guys had asked what kind of hobbies 
<laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I, I haven't had a hobby in I don't even know how many years. I like to go hiking, but yeah, I know a lot of people like to be creative and, and do make things. And I just, I don't. It's just something that has been lost in my life as a firefighter. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way, that it would have, could have that kind of effect. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of first responder jobs, it's, it is just really challenging. And while you're gone for those days, then the family's at home adjusting to you not being there, not being in that role. So you get home and then the kids are trying to get used to you again. You're trying to adjust like they're used to going to mom for everything, but now dad's there and dad wants to interact with kids. And then you finally kind of get back into maybe some semblance of like, normal family life mom and dad are both there and then you're gone for two days again and you have to just repeat that cycle and i've seen that with first responder families that i've worked with is just that inconsistency really wears down on the family being able to feel connection and unity because they're always just trying to adjust right I, all the new guys that come in now i tell them like listen your job when you go home is for you to integrate into the family the family doesn't need to integrate to you. Mm -hmm. And I had that wow. backwards in my head for so long, right? Mm -hmm. So we're paramilitaristic, meaning like as a captain, if I tell my guys we're going to go do something, it gets done right then. There's no questions asked. Mm -hmm. Nobody box at it. We go do it. If one if of my nobody gets their feelings hurt if it's said in a in a stern way. way. Mm -hmm. right. right. They just do it. Right. Yeah. If one of my paramedics I'm on scene and they say, Hey, Cap, we need a helicopter. I order a helicopter right there. I don't question them. Yeah. I try to decipher the meaning behind it. Right. right? Then yeah. you come home and your kids are running amok, yeah. right? And you want them to clean up their room or you want them to go do their homework or you want to go out and go do something and you tell them something once. Well, they're kids. Right. They don't listen the first time, but yeah. that's not the lifestyle I'm used to. Right. And it has taken me years to figure that out. And I, so I try to tell the guys, these new kids, like, remember you integrate back into the family. They don't integrate into you because our life is so different. We're the abnormal. We're the anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I can see how that could really be helpful for you to kind of pay attention and then follow the lead because that's, that is such different roles, right? In a family as a couple, you're you're supposed to be like working together to solve problems. And I can see that if you're gone for two days and then Denise is in charge and then you come home and you're trying to be in charge, Denise is going to feel like, what, you don't think I can do this? Like you've been <laughs> gone all this time, right? Yeah. right? Well, I didn't think I could do it. And I think that's kind of where I went wrong for a long time. You know, we were in such a state of living outside of that window of tolerance that I started also being dysregulated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would try to take the path of least resistance, which isn't always the right one, because I'm one that I really like calm, I need peace in my life. And so the influx of emotions, you know, that you have in your home, just from having children, we're supposed to be teaching them how to be functioning adults but when the parents themselves aren't regulated you know it creates this storm 
and and so our home always felt uptight it always felt like there was contention and explosiveness and you know a lot of reactionary and i this is one thing i've come to realize is that i became reactionary over the years trying to you know to put out those fires at our house constantly and trying to keep the peace and running interference and it was exhausting first of all and it didn't work you know what should have happened is that i should have had his back i should have gone okay wait i'm seeing things that that i know you don't want to be like this i know this isn't you and i should have been his person all along and supported what his values were and not gone against my own values trying to keep the peace or you know because now nobody's happy mm-hmm. and and I don't think we were alone in this kind of dynamic that it created I think a lot of first responder families start falling into that I don't know just this yeah just this kind of tension dysregulation right conflict contention disconnection disconnect here's an example like so i would come home from work and this is going to sound totally ridiculous right (laughs) but i'd walk in the house and i'm tired i've been gone for two days and sometimes more sometimes more and if the house was messy Mm. or the house had dishes in the sink or i walk in and i step on a toy right and i just totally lose it over something so small Mm-hmm. right but i'm dysregulated already and now it's like oh what kind of mood is dad coming home with right like do i have to watch my p's and q's or do i have to does the house have to be totally spotless before dad comes home so he's calm you know that kind of dysregulation is i think what we're talking about definitely and and, and i i know that night before he would uh come home i was really uptight i'm like okay we need to clean we need to have everything right because mm-hmm. i wanted him to be able to come home and relax and be able to go take a nap and not get upset and so that put me in this high stress state all the time and and that affected our kids mm-hmm. you know they <laughs> these poor kids i don't know how they made it through i don't know how we're all talking <laughs> to each other still after all these years <laughs> um but and i think it's not the profession necessarily. It does present more obstacles and more things to overcome. But mm-hmm. I think with the right tools, with the right awareness, it can be done mm-hmm. and, and families can thrive. And I think that's where maybe we missed out is that it kind of took us by surprise we didn't know, you know, we always thought, oh, you know, once you get hired, you know, life is going to be great. And once you get hired, you know, this job is going to bring us so much stability and happiness. And this is what we always wanted. All of our dreams will come true. And instead it presented a whole different set of challenges that we had no idea. And you weren't prepared for, you didn't know how to adjust to them. No, you had had no idea until it was almost too late, right? Mm-hmm. Until I went into a rehabilitation center, like I just had no idea that I was yeah. even reacting that way. I didn't know I was bringing home that kind of stress. It just, not to say it crept up on us, right? But you slowly start deviating 
and getting away from your values and what your family goals are. And all of a sudden you're in a, like you're living peculiarly, like I'm home isolating myself from my family. I don't want to, it's not like I don't want to be around them, but I don't want to be around them. I just want to <laughs> be left alone. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause, and I just like, I'll be sitting in a conversation and have no clue what anybody's even talking yeah. about. You're somewhere else. Yeah. I'm somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was just overloaded all the time. And so I'm overloaded also. I'm curious about how much you knew about PTSD before you received treatment. So I had gone through ART. So I knew like there was some things that were wrong. And I was trying to get a hold of anger because I had a really short fuse, but I didn't know that that was one of the signs of PTSD. Mm. Okay. And I was living in that realm and it was always there. Anger was always lurking right around the corner (laughs) and um, a short fuse. So to answer your question, I didn't realize the extent of PTSD and what it was doing to my life until I went into rehab. Okay. So you'd been a firefighter for almost 30 years. Almost 30 years, yeah. And you had been exposed so much to so many traumatic events, right? Think about how many days and hours a year that you work. Right. And how many calls you get. And you had no clue that you even had PTSD. No. I heard a stat that there's like firefighters run on 800 capital T traumas in their career. So critical (sighs) incident calls, meaning there is loss of life in a traumatic way there's going to be i I don't know how detailed you want to get so julie you can edit all (laughs) out if you want there's death dismemberment blood you know on all all age groups it's Mm -hmm. not just you know okay yeah this makes sense we're in battle we're you know we're fighting a war here no this is in your own neighborhood in your own community with children, with people, your kids age, uh, with, you know, people sometimes that, you know, personally. Yeah. And so 800 on average throughout the career of a first responder. That's insane. That is so and that's much. Not just, you know, little car accidents where, yeah. you know, someone has to be taken yeah. to the hospital over a, you know, broken arm or something. That's it's, we're not talking about that. We're talking about horrific horrific scenes and those those images those smells those sounds do not go away yeah not not on their own that's for sure (laughs) yeah and what i found out right is that they get stored in the amygdala and then that filing cabinet doesn't you're supposed to be able to take those memories and bring them up to the frontal lobe and work through them right (laughs) well with ptsd and for me it just stayed back there amygdala and it just started wrecking havoc and my body wasn't able to process it and it just gets stuck on a loop or it gets shoved in a box and then but all those feelings are still there and Mm -hmm. i start freaking out over like little tiny things and i don't even know why yeah. And because of all of your training, you're trained that when your body is freaking out, you just do the job, right? right. You ignore it. You don't pay Stuck attention it to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my upbringing in the fire service is a little bit different than the, the guys and girls that are coming in today. It was leave your feelings at the door. Like, do you want this job or do you not? 
So shut your mouth and do your job. And that's how I was raised in the fire service. Stop crying about it. Yeah. Like there's no crying in baseball, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Definitely not crying at the fire station. Yeah. So which um, is so hard. Oh, I mean, I just can't imagine like coming from a scene where you like watch an infant die and not being allowed to feel those human feelings. Right. And that's exactly what happens. Like you come back to the station and nobody's crying We're we got dark humor or we're not talking at all. And um, you go home and you just shove it in the little box in your head and and keep on moving on. Um, When I was going through brain spotting, some of that stuff started coming out and the therapist was like, well, okay, hold on. We're not not dealing with all this part of the trauma yet, but um, one thing at a time. Yeah. One thing at a time. Like, yeah. Some of that stuff started coming out. Yeah. What's amazing about trauma treatment now though, is that we understand so much more that we can edit those memories so that they don't have to just stay there forever, ready to be triggered anymore. But it doesn't happen by itself. And that's what's different about trauma memories. Is it is stored differently. And especially when it's causing PTSD symptoms, it's really important to get the right treatment. But the right treatment can be very effective. Right. And very helpful. Yeah. The, the, my two favorite treatments so far is the brain spotting and EMDR. Those okay. have been the most effective for me. It's not yeah, easy. Those are great trauma treatments for sure. That's- yeah. They're hard. They like you come out exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, good. Well, what what else do you think would be helpful for people to know? What else would you like to share? I think maybe one of some of the things that have gone right. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be yeah. good. And how we've gotten there. Well, I think what's gone right is the fact that I was able to slow down and actually when i say breathe i mean literally breathe and also take a breath in my life Mm. right and just evaluate it for what it is like it doesn't have to be this i don't have to be living in this ptsd state of mind and in constant conflict right so what has gone right is since i came out i just slowed everything down and i put my mental health first Mm -hmm. they tell us that recovery your recovery has to come before anybody for anything Mm -hmm. and to me initially that sounded like such a selfish self-centered thing to do but it's really not because it's like the airplane analogy right like you got to put that mask on me first before Mm -hmm. i can help the person next to me so every day every day without fail i get up i do my ice bath i practice meditation i do my wim hof breathing i journal I write down gratitudes, uh, three gratitudes in the morning and three gratitudes at night. And all of that stuff is helping me. And then I also read my scriptures every day. So all of those things combined together are giving me a better success in this life than what I had before. Because I might have been doing one thing out of those. If that. Yeah. Yeah. You've really made it a priority to do what you need to do. And it's kind of like you're paying attention and taking the time to put the gas in your engine, right? In your car. Mm-hmm. And before you were like, no, I'm going to do everything for everyone else. I'm going to make sure everyone else has the gas that they need. Right. <laughs> and then you're exhausted because you're running all over the place, but you didn't have any gas. 
You yeah, couldn't... I had no gas left. <laughs> you had no gas ever. That's running ever. on fumes. <laughs> <laughs> and the fumes were getting low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now, now that you're able to fill up and have that gas, you can show up in such a different way, really, for yourself and for everyone else. I mean, you right. are a firefighter because you want to help people. Right. And you're so much better able to do that now. Yeah. I I got to a point, and this is going to sound really horrible, so please don't judge me. <laughs> but I got to a point in my career that in order to feel something, like we have to not- make death notifications, right? And there's a specific way you tell somebody that, hey, somebody, like, if I was to say, hey, Denise has died, I say, I'm sorry that Denise has died. There's nothing that we can do. We have done everything possible, right? And what can I do for you now? And that's exactly how I tell families. So mm-hmm. I got to a point where in order to feel something, not that I enjoyed telling families that, but I knew that when I told the family that their their loved one had died, I was going to feel something, mm-hmm. right? whether it was sadness or fear or some kind of anger or whatever it was, I was going to feel something, right? Because otherwise I was emotionless. But now I'm going on scenes and I can empathize with people like that are just having a bad day. Wow. So like it's, it's been life changing over this last year. Wow. Hopefully that that doesn't showing up. Yeah. No, I think that makes I a think lot that, of sense. That's a good example. Yeah, I think yeah. it makes a lot of sense when you were in PTSD. The, uh, there isn't any room for you to feel that connection and that compassion. You're just like, I have to do what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that compassion factor was gone pretty early, actually, with mm-hmm. us. Not, I think for a while, I was getting to the point where I was thinking, I can't do this anymore. You know, our kids were really struggling. I was struggling. Jeff was struggling. And I think, you know, it's natural for the human brain when something's going wrong, you want to find a reason. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and sometimes I would blame Jeff for what was going on, or I would blame the kids for what was going on, or blame myself for what was going on. And, you know, of course, each time missing the mark, and it got pretty tough there for a long time and I wasn't sure if our marriage was going to survive. Yeah. And I think the greatest thing that ever happened was when he was at the recovery center, he included me on this journey and he would communicate what was going on in his mind, you know, the things that he was learning. And I gained a perspective and an understanding through that because he was able to open up and bring me in. And I just realized I had it all wrong. I had judged the situation completely wrong. And that's kind of where I feel. Oh, and I'm so, so glad that that happened because I don't know where we would be without this intervention that we've had. And I feel so passionate now with this new perspective that with understanding in a marriage, and and I'm sure this is true for everybody, especially with the extremes that firefighters and first responders have, how they 
live their life in extremes and their emotions are in extremes. I think with that understanding and with accumulating tools that are going to be effective for these unique circumstances, those tools that are going to help your marriage, they're going to help how you parent. They're just going to help you be a better friend and a better sibling and a better employee. But we really need to get in there and start this community and start the conversation going. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do right now and starting with the spouses that know that the spouses are going to be probably the number one biggest source of support. Mm-hmm. And as a support, I have to understand and recognize what he was going through you know and for so many years I didn't I didn't have a clue I just thought you know maybe we're all wrong for each other maybe you know I I just had all these different reasons to blame it on that weren't correct (laughs) Mm -hmm. so yeah that's what we're trying to do right now get the spouses together and start the conversation on our end to increase the compassion for what they're going through I think that was uh, something that changed our marriage when I opened up and I started telling her what was going on up here. For sure. In my yeah. For sure. Because I was just so quiet and closed down and I, I just didn't communicate anything anymore. And yeah. I think he opened his mind to my perspective too, to my point of view. And so both of us had a lot more patience with each other. We had a lot more understanding more compassion and we were able to show up as the marriage partner that we wanted to be. So that's probably one of the takeaways that I would share with people. Like, you know, as you're struggling with trauma and if you have a supportive spouse or you want a supportive spouse, share, Mm -hmm. share what's going on. Like if you don't communicate, then nothing's going to change. It's only going to get worse. But if you do communicate, the odds of it getting better between two people are going to just substantially increase. Mm-hmm. So yeah. communicate, share. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, just like you talked about not being able to feel that compassion, you know, if you share like I'm here and the kids are complaining because they can't find the right clothes. And I'm thinking about someone who just died and this problem does not seem important, right? Like, right. and yeah. To be able to share that perspective so the spouse can say, yeah, that is really rough. I can see why it would be really hard to come back to like a normal everyday life situation and really feel connected to that, right? And have a spouse that can support and understand, can give you time to feel those feelings and maybe hopefully move through them so you can then connect. Definitely. And it's got to be a two-way road. That's the other thing I just want to make sure I'm clear on. Like, it can't just be me sharing my trauma with my wife or my my spouse, right? Like, I have to be open to what she's going to tell me as well. That two-way road is so important. Yeah. And for a long time, I was afraid to share with him. I knew how easily things could set him off. And I didn't want to add to his mm. load anymore. So yeah. I started bottling things up. Yep. 
It's just, that's such a great way to build resentment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Don't recommend it. (laughs) Yeah. So things have changed for you guys a lot since May. This has been kind of a complete transformation for you and your family. It's been the hardest and the best year. (laughs) I think. I think that's an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's been very transformative. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like I've been given a second shot at life. That's awesome. That is awesome. I definitely, our marriage has been given a second chance too. Yeah. That's really good. Relationship with our kids has been different. We've opened the dialogue for them to talk about things that they liked in their childhood and things that they didn't like and we're not so defensive about it like yeah you know what I bet that was hard yeah yeah and I think another thing too that another message I want to give to these younger families that are starting out in this and and even some of the ones like us that have been in it for decades is that we're doing a lot better than we give ourselves credit for this yeah it is a tremendously heavy load that, you know, not only Jeff carries, but I carry too. Mm-hmm. And it could have been a whole lot worse. Yeah. 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 I mean, the fact that you guys are here together and have been through this transformation says a lot about you too, because a lot of couples, they don't, they don't make it through. They don't survive. Yeah. yeah the um, divorce rate is something like 50% of us in the fire service. That's probably huge. Yeah. yeah. And I think the thing that kept me from going anywhere, um, yeah. or from, you know, doing anything stupid, like ending our marriage or anything is that I knew who he was mm-hmm. deep down. Yeah. I, I knew my Jeff was in there somewhere. Yeah. I, I was not ready to give up on him. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't turn my back on him. And just because I, I knew what kind of person he had had always wanted to be and who who he just he really was on the inside right yeah well we appreciate you so much sharing this experience i mean it's really amazing and i think can help so many different people right i think it can be very helpful for anyone who has a loved one who's really struggling but i think it really helps for people to understand what first responder families sometimes go through because it's not the normal everyday nine to five yeah. lifestyle. It, it was hard for me to, uh, to open up and relate to my friends, you know, at, as our kids were younger to, mm-hmm. because their husbands were home every night or they didn't typically yeah. blowed over, you know, a dish being left out or, <laughs> you know, and so I always felt as though, Others looked at us and like, man, what is wrong with that family? Like they're falling apart. And it's, you know, it it was true. We, we were, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I hesitated to open up really to anyone. Yeah. And that just led to more isolation, which is really, really hard. Well, I want to just personally thank you for being willing to share your story because I have PTSD as well. I don't know if that's something that Julie mentioned to you, but it's been getting better, but it's been kind of a struggle, especially lately since I've moved here to 
to <laughs> Utah, like it's been like an ongoing four or five months of just being in like trauma response. It feels like so. It's the snow. <laughs> it's the cold weather. No, I love the snow. Actually, <laughs> oh. I was in California and I, we it was twenty six too... years of summer, which is my least favorite season. So <laughs> I don't know. But... Well, you haven't lived in Utah that long. I remember the first year that we moved here to Utah from California. Mm-hmm. The first time it snowed, we're like, oh, it's snowing. And we ran outside and then like magical. the year passed and we're like, eh, it's no. over. We're over. <laughs> we hate this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know how long it's going to be before I get sick of it, but so far I love it. But I don't know. I think for me, the big thing is, and I'm happy that you guys shared your story is just to bring awareness because that mentality of just suck it up and man up or whatever it is that they tell you is just, it doesn't work. Right. And I think it's largely a generational thing. I think we have a lot more understanding now than my parents did, your parents did, things like that. But um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Having the resources, being able to have access to those tools, I think can be tremendously helpful. And I think people can do that job way better if they have the right tools to be able to cope with the things they see. So, Absolutely. And don't be afraid to reach out. Yeah. Right? If things are going askew in your mind, mm-hmm. ask for help. Yeah. It never hurt anyone <laughs> to ask for help. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in again. This has been really fun. Again, happy we're on season two. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye.